In a leak of nearly 12 million confidential documents called the Pandora Papers. The Pandora Papers. I'm Neil and this is News Review from BBC Learning English. Pandora Papers, as they're being called, a collection of nearly 12 million files published the Pandora by the Papers are a stunning leak of financial secrets. And what we see from On October 3rd of 2021, the largest investigation in journalism history was published, exposing a financial system, a shadow economy, that benefits the world's most rich and powerful. The investigation named Pandora Papers was led by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. More than 600 journalists from 150 news outlets dived into almost 12 million documents, exposing offshore dealings of 35 current and former world leaders and more than 300 officials and politicians. Today we will learn how this massive data investigation was organized and what it means to turn millions of unstructured data into structured databases. My name is Thanasis Troboukis. I'm a data journalist working for the non-profit journalism organization IMED. You are listening to the third episode of our podcast, Data on the Record, which presents data journalism stories, people and methodologies. Today I have the pleasure to host Emilia Diaz-Strack, ICIJ's research editor and Latin America coordinator. So, Emilia, thank you so much for being with us. Um, tell us a few things about yourself and your work. Well, th- thanks very much for the invitation. Yes, I'm Emilia Diestruck. I work uh, as part of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, uh, and I lead a wonderful data and research team. I'm the data and research editor. We have a team that... Um, involves a data journalist, analyst, uh, researchers, and together we work in coordination with our tech team and uh, try to um, answer all our journalistic needs and how data can help with our reporting process. So I'm originally from Venezuela, live in the US, and also well have the honor of working uh, with a wonderful network around the world. In the case of the Pandora Papers, we work with more than 600 journalists in 170 countries and territories. How and why did you start working with data? Well, that's a, that's a wonderful question. It actually connects with my home country. Uh, when I started working as an investigative journalist, um, I started seeing that a lot uh, of the information that was coming out in the country, there, was a lot, there were a lot of speeches, uh, it was sometimes um, only about what people were saying and uh, in a very polarized country, um, actually starting to work with data became a way of bulletproofing the stories and going beyond what people were saying and, um, and start to find connections of information that otherwise could be hidden or missed by the citizens. That's how data journalism started for me. It, it started when it was called actually computer-assisted reporting and data journalism, it has evolved over time. And I started learning it as a way of, of making uh, better my, my work. But that's, yeah, that was the beginning for me, like when it came to data journalism. So you published an article on ICIJ's website characterizing the Pandora Papers as an offshore data tsunami. So would you please help us understand how big this leak was? Oh, yeah. Well, it was really a data tsunami, as, as the <laughs> article says. And it's basically we were talking about more than 11.9 uh, million records or more than 
2.94 terabytes of data. But what does this mean? This doesn't mean like these documents that we were talking about, these records or these files, um, were in all many different shapes and formats, and it was literally a mess. So these more than 11.9 million records came from 14 different sources, which in this case were 14 um, offshore providers that uh, gave services uh, in different parts of the world to clients connected to more than uh, 200 countries and territories. The thing that we had here was that we had, for instance, over uh, more than 6 million um, documents that were like PDFs, Word documents, and, and other formats. And for instance, from those PDFs that we had like more than 4 million, it was not a one-page PDF, and it was not like a uh, like a novel of like your famous uh, like a famous author it was like oh i read that one pdf had 10000 pages literally yes that's what i was going yes so <laughs> it was 10, like one 10000 page <laughs> page pdf but it was not a novel i have to say so those uh, sometimes actually you had printed forms that then one later scanned in pdf format uh, and um, combining text, uh, emails that were like then uh, converted into PDFs. But yeah, some of those PDFs were 10,000 page long. So it was like even the 4 million, you, you can multiply by the number of pages and they were complicated to handle. But it were, we were not talking only about that. We were talking about image files, over a million emails, and only like about 4% of those files that we got were spreadsheets. <laughs> so like structure so most of it was unstructured and a big mess and even the spreadsheets well you need to like they didn't come with any documentation so we had to figure out well what are these spreadsheets about what do they mean uh, and each provider had its own way of organizing the information so for each one of them we had to find uh, and solve a different puzzle basically and find the like specific kind of files that would allow us to, for instance, extract information about beneficial owners. It was it didn't come all together and said, hey, here are all the beneficial owners tied to the companies that uh, the offshore uh, providers are giving services to. So it was a big mess. It was, a, as we were saying, a data tsunami. Uh, and the volume and the complexity of the files was not only in the content, but also in the way they came. So we had to find many different ways in which we could handle those files. Some also, for instance, were handwritten. So like there are things that we could automate, but there are other things that we had to do manually, you know? So uh, we can go a bit through the process uh, of how we extracted the information, but like basically it was large volume of files in a very disorganized manner in all very different shapes and formats. It sounds like a, ni- a data nightmare the way that you describe it, but this information was so valuable, right? So I wanted to ask you, you wake up one morning and you receive a phone call saying, hey, Emilia, we have a new massive leak and you get the data. Where do you start from? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And there, there comes um, a big uh, team effort, but also technologies that are t- team has developed over time. So a first step is to make all those files searchable and explorable because for us, uh, we have a wonderful data team, but uh, we want everyone in our network to be able to use the data to explore the files. So the, 
the, what ended up being these 600 journalists. We wanted all to have access and be able to search them. So uh, our uh, team, our tech team has developed a wonderful tool called DataShare that is open source. Uh, and we basically put all those documents up there. Uh, it's they get OCR, they like so then that they are searchable. And through DataShare, there's some great things that DataShare does. Like you can, besides do the standard searches, then you can actually do batch searches, which means that you can upload list of names and check against the files, for instance, if that's there. You can also um, tag files and you can, it also does entity extraction, which means it automatically recognizes names of uh, sometimes people, um, uh, organizations and locations. And, and that helps you navigate at that first level. But on the data front, there are different questions that we need to ask ourselves. One is the validation part of the data, mm -hmm. like, uh, and that there's a full process that we need to go through through the validation. And then what kind of data can we structure and gather uh, to be able to do systemic analysis and see how the information is represented, like, and how, um, what kind of content can be relevant for our network all around the world. So there are a few things that we did, but one that is is super was super central to our project was we did a full structuring data project, uh, and that involved different processes. So we we split our team and like we reviewed each provider and identified key files that would provide us information with about beneficial owners and um, the companies uh, that they own, you know, where they were registered, addresses, like, and what kind of information we could identify. So depending on the providers, in some cases we use, for instance, a Python scripts to extract that information. In other cases with these 10,000 page documents, we also use machine learning to recognize- This goes my next question. If you use machine learning to categorize or just to read these documents. Not for everything. We use machine learning for a few things. So one was to detect uh, um, parts in parts of the documents, and that was for a specific provider where we had this 10,000 page uh, PDFs where key information about the owners was, and then to be able to extract that. Uh, we also use machine learning for something for to solve a different problem. So we also use uh, machine learning with like a, a different process. We divided the files and sentences, and we um, identified similar type of documents to cluster basically what I would call like a spam cluster, you know, mm -hmm. so you could remove when you do the searches, you could remove specific type of files that would lead to these kind of false positive and help with the analysis. But that is side, like a side of the structuring and, and gathering all the beneficial ownership data, though for one of the providers, we did use machine learning in other cases, which is like the different extremes. So we have different ways of approaching this because each provider had its own shape and format. What did we do when there were handwritten forms with key information? <laughs> then we had someone manually extracting from our team all the information and, oh my God. and validate that information. Uh, so then there were tables. So when there were tables, then we could, uh, uh, the extraction was simpler. When you had the PDFs, then we had uh, that additional process that uh, that our team did with machine learning. But then, for instance, 
with the spreadsheets themselves, like we had to combine similar type of spreadsheets and we were lucky. Those were the simplest ones, I think, when we had a spreadsheet. So, but it, it was a putting order to the mess, basically. So we spent months, I think over a year, actually putting order mm-hmm. to the mess. Uh, and then once we have all the structure and we were doing it by provider first, and we started generating what we call country lists, which means we share the whole data with the team, but at the same time, we produce lists um, with the names of, uh, of people, or beneficial owners, cited companies that were linked to specific countries because we had country values in the data, like nationality or residency. And those we were using to help identify, like help our partners around the world identify key names for the reporting. Once we had structured them, we also combined the whole data for analysis to get like all the overview and see how many countries and territories, distribution of beneficial owners um, around the world. And, and then you can- A descriptive statistical analysis, let's say, something like that. No, it, it's it's it is it is fascinating. And uh, like a, a next step was to put all the data also in graph format. You might have seen our offshore leaks database mm-hmm. uh, where we represent visually these connections between people and companies. We also do that internally and to help before publication, to help mine that data uh, and find connections that sometimes could be not that obvious. So then we use um, Neo4j and Lincurious to generate the graphs and to also make them searchable for anyone without any coding, any coding skills. They could export, explore the graph databases, type names and see, uh, like, because I, I always say, I, I do love spreadsheets. Many people in our data team, they all love spreadsheets, but not all our partners, like not everyone loves spreadsheets. Like it can be intimidating seeing thousands of rows with information. So the, like the graph databases makes, makes the exploration of the data very friendly and like in a different manner. So it, it then it becomes data for everyone again. Um, so this list were, were a great step for helping to help with the reporting, but also to do analysis out of them. So I understand that the first step is the taxonomy or the categorization of the data. Uh, but what is the end goal? Do you want to create one massive database or do you create uh, smaller databases that maybe are easier to handle? There, there are different goals. So one, we, we do want and that, that master database that we end up putting in the graph uh, format and graph databases. But at the same time, we create smaller lists by provider with the connections by country. Uh, but that only at the beneficial ownership level. There are other things that our team does as part of the analysis process for different stories. So we had, for instance, uh, Dauphine, um, who's part of our data team, uh, spent a lot of time looking into um, trust, trust data. So there was a full like specific, and those actually US trusts, because there's you might have seen there is a, a full story that uh, was done by by our team on the use of South Dakota as a uh, like as a jurisdiction, uh, and it was connected to trust. So we wanted to see how many U.S. trusts uh, we could identify in the data, which jurisdictions were used for this, those trusts, which people like who was behind them, and which countries. So there was a full separate analysis for those 
uh, more than a hundred uh, hundreds of trusts that uh, U.S. trusts that were identified in the data, and there is a full validation process for that. Um, Jesus spent a lot of time also looking into suspicious activity reports, like a different type of, of files. And then, uh, in his case, he just um, he also um, was identifying suspicious activity reports straight to one provider that was part of a story about what. Uh, um, Alcogal, who's like basically the provider with uh, half of the politicians in our data. And then uh, he spent a lot of time looking at those files and, uh, and, and structuring that information, which is a smaller data set. Augie looked a lot at real estate data and the presence of real estate in the files. And then like a joint team effort, for instance, um, was done by everyone in our data team to gather information about the politicians in the data that our partners started sharing. And then we had to validate that the people were the people and then that they were connected to companies, what they were using the companies for. So, and it was going from the records to external records. Uh, it, it includes um, corporate records, but also court records and um, other databases that would allow us to validate that information. And that's how we ended up having uh, and, and identifying of more than 330 uh, politicians in the data, which is more than what we have ever found uh, before. What percentage of the work that you are describing is manual work? I mean, meaning people have to read the files and uh, input the data into a spreadsheet or in some other uh, platform and how much what is the percentage of this work that is automated it's a combination and it's 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 hard to tell because sometimes you automate to uh, gain a lot of time uh, and then uh, there is a, 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 an important portion where then there is a lot of manual uh, validation and verification of what you have automated so for several for many of the providers of the beneficial owners in most of the cases, I think um, about uh, I think seventy percent of them it was automated. Uh, but then, for instance, in the case where we use machine learning, there was a lot of manual work afterwards mm -hmm. to validate the information because the machine doesn't get always everything right. Uh, so that's uh, so the, it's it's hard to tell really the proportion. Uh, but the the work with the politicians was manual work. Like it, like the documents were not structured in a way where we could automate that. So that was a lot of research uh, and manual work to gather that information and structure it. I understand that this is a lot of work, a lot of work. Yes. <laughs> and, and since we are discussing about the technical part of the work, I wonder uh, which programming languages does your team use? And if you yourself are writing, is, uh, are you writing programs yourself? Yeah, well, I, I oversee a lot of the work our team does and make sure like we follow all the steps. But uh, our, our team has um, uh, many people are love Python. So that's, mm -hmm. I think, one of the most popular uh, languages uh, inside our team. Um, and then, um, yeah, that, that's 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 one of the main uh, the main uh, programming languages that is used, for instance, and for the graph databases, we use uh, Neo4j um, and then there are other, there are other like, like which is not not programming languages, but there are different tools that um, that are that are being used. But Python, I think, wins at the, the moment. We have had people in our team uh, using uh, R or SQL, 
but at, at this moment, I think, and, and, and to me, it's more like about the process and that we get the results right. So I don't mind if anyone is using Python, R, or SQL, or whatever, uh, as long as we are, it's reproducible. And then we usually have uh, several rounds of fact-checking. So, mm -hmm. but, uh, but Python is, is very popular, I think. I think that's the, that's the main one that, that is being used at the moment by, by our team. It is my favorite programming language, so... So when I took when I took part in the Paradise Papers investigation along with my colleague Harry Karanikas, who is a member of ICIJ, I didn't have any coding skills. And the most frequent question that I receive ever since is if you if you need to know Python or any other coding language to take part in such investigation. So I wonder how do you help all these hundreds of journalists who don't have data skills or programming skills to navigate and get stories out of the data? Yes, no, and oh, I, I love that question. And we actually have uh, someone wonderful in our team who's our training manager, Jelena Kosik, who does uh, a lot of training for our partners uh, in terms of how they can use our tools uh, for research and how they can make a better understanding of what is in front of us. So we have an interesting data component and she organizes, she does trainings herself and organizes trainings with other members from our team to help with that process. So, and it's uh, on and creates it also tutorials on how we can use a data share, for instance, in, in an advanced manner, how we can explore and navigate graph databases. But a big part of uh, what our, our team does is how to make data accessible for everyone. Like, which is, we don't need everyone to be a coder, to be a data journalist, to be part of an ICAJ project. So we want all the different skills. So in, in, in our projects, we have a wide range. You have the best field reporters who, um, who actually know all about, uh, like have the best sources and have investigated the present. We have like also the best data reporters, like know all about coding and how to mine data and a wide range between those two. And, but we want everyone to, be, uh, to have access and benefit of the data. So what we figure out is what are the best ways in which we can present our data work. We do data calls with our partners so that they get informed also about our processes and we keep them posted about our ongoing work and see how, what kind of questions do they have. Uh, and then um, based on that, uh, we, we, yeah, there's a, that process of structuring data, sharing data, but also sharing analysis, results of analysis throughout a project uh, to help with that mining process. So it's, it's um, not a, a requirement to be a data journalist to be part of an ICAJ project. How important is the digital security in your work? Digital security is central in our work. And we are, uh, I, I think we have a healthy paranoia, but we don't want to compromise any reporter, nor a project itself, nor a source. Um, so we take digital security into account in many different levels. So in uh, part of our tech team, there are security experts too. So our technologies handle encryption uh, and they have other levels uh, of digital security, including two-factor authentication and other aspects to make a, like available and user-friendly the access to documents and records, but at the same time, not compromise the records. Uh, 
at the same time, for instance, it's the same with we have a wonderful um, resource, which is called the Global IHUB, which is like a social network, secure social network uh, for communication, uh, where people can start sharing uh, what they're finding throughout the project. So that's part of where the magic, it's like a virtual newsroom 24-7, where that magic happens. And that also handles encryption. How big is your team? Well, uh, my t- it, it, it fluctuates. <laughs> so for the um, uh, for the project itself, uh, like we, we we involve a few more people. Uh, in the case of the Pandora Papers, there were around ten people working on the data and research front. Uh, the The core team uh, are, are uh, that that um, is part of this is like it's about six to seven people usually. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it increased. Uh, it increased during the Pandora Papers. We had. Uh, to involve a few more colleagues uh, as part of the data and research team because the amount of work we had in front of us was a lot and we had to actually um, well deal with our deadlines and, and do it always at, with the standards uh, we, we aim for, you know, which is uh, all validated, all verified before sharing any number uh, for any story and for the whole project. Uh, so what would you say now to a young data journalist uh, or to a young journalist who wants to become a data journalist? Yes, well, I, I would say a few things. I would say don't be afraid of learning new things. I always like to start with what I don't know, you know, and that leads to many interesting questions and answers. And how can you address what you don't know? Uh, and then be critical. Programming languages and tools evolve over time so it's good to know and learn uh, what do you feel like and there's this all big big uh, discussion of like do people prefer r or python but to me as i was saying before it's about the process you being critical about the process being critical about the data that you have in front of you and then understanding how the data process works from the beginning, like when you're gathering the data until you do the full analysis and how that can help for a reporting process. So once you understand like all the steps and how you need to, what are the things that you need to keep in mind uh, when you're working with data, um, then it, it doesn't matter, as I said, if you use R or Python, as long as you do it with the standards, you need to do them. So don't be afraid of learning new things, uh, but uh, pick the language you feel more comfortable with. Uh, and also don't be afraid of, of working as part of a team. I think the present and the future of a lot of the work we're doing is collaborative and a lot of magic can happen also at the data level when you work with other people, because that adds different views to the data work uh, that is done. I think that, um, Another extra thing that I think it's important and central when you're working with data is to document. Document your whole process because that allows you to go back to it and then see where there could be a problem that also allows you to validate and fact check your data. And also understand that there are different ways of approaching and and not always the same the same we have different problems we're dealing with data sometimes you can use programming languages sometimes you can do magic with excel or with other tools that are available so it's understanding what are the paths so if you have for instance a a hundred row spreadsheet where like you can sort uh, uh, and answer a question in a minute by filtering 
that spreadsheet, you don't need a programming language for that. But you need to understand, are those 100 rows that you have in front of you correct? So it doesn't matter the scale, the importance is documenting your process and then understanding what is the to address your data problems. And sometimes it can be, as we were talking here, it involves also manual work. Sometimes it involves uh, automation. So it's more understanding the process and being ready for the surprises the data can bring to you. No data is perfect, so be critical and ask the right questions when you're starting with your data work. Emilia, thank you so much for navigating us through the process that you followed working with this massive data of the Pandora Papers. Thank you very much.